What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, did you successfully not overreact to the early signing period? Man, you know, people were telling me that Brian Kelly didn't want to recruit because he wanted to play golf. You know, LSU had 27 signees. They signed all 27 of them by 1 p.m. If Brian Kelly wanted to have a 2 p.m. tea time, more power to him. You know what? The most chill early signing day in my life. Nobody flipped that, you know, nobody flipped on signing day. All this hay was in the barn. It was the most chill, relaxing experience. I got to laugh at other teams, have their recruiting classes come apart. And um, specifically, Colorado did that weird thing. I heard somewhere that Maryland has a guy that they tell to go undercover every year. That's kind of a piece of crap move. But yeah, all the weird flips on signing day just didn't affect us. Maryland quietly has one of the weirder recruiting underbellies that you'll see in this sport. And oh, yeah. I, I always feel like Maryland throws some weird hijinks there at the final 11th hour. We're not going to talk about Maryland recruiting, I promise. Don't turn this podcast off thinking that that's what we're going to talk about today. It, it's definitely not. We're going to have Brett Merriman join us in a bit to talk about his proposal to fix college football. He's going to talk some lanes, some Ole Miss stuff as well. I've also got a Christmas reading that we're going to close with. Definitely stick around for that. Um, we're not going to talk Maryland recruiting today. But there, I think, are a lot of different ways that you could have looked at signing day, depending on which fan base you were in. But if you were a Florida fan, I think you probably let out a sigh of relief by the end of the day. Just a a little sigh of relief. I want to talk about DJ Lagway because I think he's in a really unprecedented spot. And if everything that we saw happen on signing day and – all, all the different things that that happened where, you know, we've got coaches not complaining about NIL, all those different things. This, I think, is still, for my money, the most interesting. And it's something that we're going to talk about moving forward. But what DJ Lagway just signed up for at Florida is unprecedented in, in a lot of different ways. Florida signing period, like the early signing period, pretty noteworthy developments, I, I think. It was difficult if you are on the outside or on the inside, not to overreact, even though I told you just don't either way, just don't mm-hmm. do it. Not worth your time. But a class that was once as high as number three in the country in the second week of November has since lost eight players that are considered blue chip recruits by 24 seven sports, the, at least in the composite rankings, they had the, the five star defensive lineman McCray. He was, he delayed his announcement, which made things that much worse. He ends up still signing with Florida, but by the time that that late afternoon DJ Lagway ceremony was happening, you're like, is this all going to just be falling apart for for Billy? Is is that what we're what we're witnessing right now? Mm-hmm. Because I think at different points of the day, it definitely felt like that. And then Lagway ceremony, it doesn't feature any drama. It's all Florida stuff. There, he signs. The, as I said, in addition to McCray, your, your five star guys there, and a sigh of relief. That, 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 I think, is how Florida fans deserve to feel at the end of that day, despite the fact that some of the, the other things you could point to would say, yep, the sky is falling. Recruits definitely noticed that it didn't really end very well uh, for the 2023 regular season. From what I was told, Lincoln Riley, Dabo, they were begging DJ Lagway at the 11th hour to get him to flip. AM did its best, but he ends up sticking with Florida amidst all the noise about Billy's future and the class that is losing pieces left and right, maybe in part he stays with Florida because of that uncertainty, as weird as that sounds. I think after the Rashada deal last year, the way all that played out, there was this feeling that if Lagway flipped, that all hope would be lost. And any sort of path 
for Billy to survive this, for Florida to get through this, would be gone. And I'm not saying that Lagway sticking with Florida means that all hope is back. But there's I, – I just feel like it is such a unique situation that is worth digging into right now, not as they are about to enter in the season, but because of the thought process behind it for all parties, really. Mm-hmm. So Lagway being billed as Florida's path out of this rut, it is – uh, fair in some ways, unfair in many other ways. I think he's fully aware of that, Will. He's, if you've seen some of his comments, it, it feels like this guy is, is understanding of the situation he's walking into. It's one thing to commit to a coach in year one that's in the midst of a rebuild, and you say that you want to be part of the future, some sort of like Christian Hackenberg thing at Penn State. But for an out-of-state kid, the Max Preps player of the year in the entire country to take on something like this when there were unlimited options for him, unlimited options with money attached to those options as well in ways that they, look, probably were in years past before NIL became a thing, but in more obvious ways where the money was definitely there and he stays with Florida. There oh, are a lot quick, of and talking about like Hackenberg, it's like it would have been such an easy fit if he wanted to go that way to just go to AM because you know Elko is at least lasting worst case two years, right? Probably likely three. Even if he's mid, he'll probably get I mean, Jimbo lasted that long. You know what I'm saying? So he could have easily stayed home, taken you never know with AM and money. We're gonna assume more money, right? Because it's AM and just been like, you know, I'll take whatever stability this is versus I'm going to bet on myself. And I, I love that move for him. And I think that's super cool to honor your pledge and be like, hey, the, kind of the easy way is down the street because the expectations are so low. There's no hot seat. You're, you're totally right. He definitely made himself more fans among Florida, among the, the Florida faithful for going mm-hmm. through that process and not even having the drama filled signing day too of having just. Florida, Florida banner with the, you know, the, the blue and orange balloons sitting right there. I mean, that was what Florida fans could have hoped for in this spot when everybody in the outside is saying, Hey, he's going to do this. He's going to do this. And he ends up not, and it wasn't filled with anything like that when that path was obviously there. We know that Graham Mertz is going to be the starter. At least that, that is the assumption, right? From what I have been told, the package is already there for Lagway and there's two more packages on the way. That's that's the vision that this coaching staff has for him as a true freshman in this offense. They're going to give him legitimate opportunities to throw the football downfield. And they have to do that at a higher rate next year. They, they just do, especially against that schedule. You're going to need some home run plays. You're not going to methodically drive the football down the field the way that Billy has traditionally liked to. The yep. usage of these two quarterbacks, it's not going to be early season Auburn with Thorne and Ashford. It's not going to be that, Okay. It's like a way upgraded version of that, I guess. It's, it's like giga both. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and some are saying, well, you know, both transfer, both Thorn and, and Mertz are Big Ten transfers and kind of guys that have been written off. And you got the exciting younger piece that's going to have to figure things out. I, I, I think as a thrower, Lackway is already ahead of where where Ashford is at. And I don't oh, like yeah. the kid. I think probably ahead of Thorn too. Honestly, like, yeah, could be definitely definitely could be. We'll wait and see on that, but. I think this is going to end up looking a little bit more like how Mullen used Trask and Emory Jones when Emory Jones was an underclassman. And that rotation actually, uh, while it was kind of frustrating at times to see Trask cooking and then all of a sudden, oh, you got to bring Emory Jones in. You kind of understood what he was doing there. Florida's Mm -hmm. ideal world. And again, this is their ideal world 
is that this turns into a 2023 version of Leak and Tebow. I know. Mm. I know. Um, yeah, that's the ideal version of this thing. Of course it is. I personally think that all teams should try and mimic formulas that won national championships. That's just me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm in the minority with that, but that, yeah. sign me up. That that's that sounds great. It'll be way easier said than done, despite the fact that Netflix tried to tell us that Chris Leak sucked and that he was much worse than Graham Mertz. Um, I, it's still going to be difficult, even if you think, well, Lagway's coming in as a more highly regarded recruit, or at least higher rated than Tebow was. Tebow was probably still just as highly regarded and billed as the savior of the future, all those different things. But it's just far from a guarantee that Lagway steps in and plays a role quite as pivotal as the one that Tebow played on that 06 Florida team. Yeah, the other- I think the difference too, like the two guys we're talking about, Ashford and Tebow, had a built-in like mobility factor. Whereas like, I don't want to sell Lagway as some like, oh, athlete playing quarterback. Like he is a throwing quarterback. Like he is yes. a dude with a gun. He throws darts. He is, you know, athletic enough to keep the play alive, but he's always looking to throw first. So getting that guy reps is often a little bit harder because when you have Tim Tebow, he's just kind of a dump truck back there. You're just like, get in and get a yard. Uh, if you have Ashford, it's like, let's turn a little RPO. With Lagway, to your point, it's like he can already throw a better deep ball probably than Mertz. So we know we can get that. But how they use him and how they incorporate him is going to be much more interesting than just, ah, it's that they get run around. Because that's using him wrong if you use him as a running quarterback, in my opinion. If it's third and 12, are you saying bring in the true freshman? Mm-hmm. He's the guy that we want in this spot. If we want something downfield like this, he's the guy that we bring in in this spot. I don't know that you're going to be able to do that every time. But can you do it sometimes? Can you do it to mix things up a little bit? Uh, perhaps, perhaps they will. And I'm not one to, to root for two quarterback systems. I do want to see DJ Lagway play. I, I really do. And obviously Florida fans do uh, as well. The other obvious, very obvious difference between what Florida is trying to do in 2023 and what they did in 2006. Uh, the pieces, the circumstances around them, a little different, just a little bit. Urban was in year two. I think we forget a little bit kind of the uncertainty of Urban in year one and what was being said about him. Um, But still, he was in year two, had plenty of patience. Leak was, again, not what Netflix tried to tell us. He was a proven guy. And Mm -hmm. while I wouldn't sit here and tell you that he was an ideal fit in Urban's system, he knew that this was a a spot where he could still thrive. And Urban was in a, a spot as a coach where he could tinker. And Florida was able to to kind of mess around with that, at least at first, because they're loaded at the skill positions. And even at their worst during that period, during the early 2000s, Florida was still cranking out defenses that were in the top fourth in the country in scoring. And that year was expected to be a really, really good Florida defense. So this situation is not that. Okay, that's that's not what I'm, I'm sitting here trying to say. I don't know that there is any situation that DJ Lagway is experiencing that I, I feel like is a perfect comp for. There's there's really not. And we've seen plenty of quarterbacks in college football be tabbed as the savior of a program upon arrival. And they're tasked with either bringing a dormant program back to life or saving a coach's job. Like Joe Burrow, LSU 2018 daunting schedule that's that's an obvious one that comes to mind but burrow had spent three years in college at ohio state 
He had been in a strength program. All of that film study was obvious. It was even obvious during his time at Ohio State. If you watched how the game slowed down for him that spring, I really thought he took a next step and was ready to be a power five starter. And that was pretty obvious. So that comp doesn't really work because we're not we're talking about a guy who, as he says, I went to school at Ohio State. I played football at LSU. Little right. different. Little different. Ten years younger than Joe Burrow, too. Ten, wait. <laughs> I'm just what? kidding. That was a joke. No, Burrow was, was like 24, 25 in college. I was just giving him like the Stetson Bennett joke. Yeah. Well, with the COVID year, you just never know. You, you just never, never know. know That's days. a good point. <laughs> yeah. I was sitting there doing the math. I'm like, wait a minute. That can't be possible. No, no. Okay. Not possible. <laughs> Yeah. 2019 Bo Nix is an interesting comp for Lagway. Interesting, I'll say. Nix was the five-star guy who got to play immediately. All the family pressure, very well documented. Uh, and, I mean, let's be honest. Gus is always on the hot seat. <laughs> Basically, any year after 2015, it's like, yeah, Gus is on the hot seat. That's just kind yeah. of the way that it, that it was for him. The difference between that situation and this one is just like we talked about with 06 Florida, the surroundings. Even mm-hmm. though the final year of Jared Stedham was disappointing in 2018, Auburn was preseason number 16 in the country heading into Bonix's freshman year in 2019. That defense was loaded, Will. Loaded. Derek Brown, Marlon Davidson, Roger McCreary. I went back wow. and counted nine NFL players on that defense, five of whom were eventually drafted in the first two rounds. That Auburn defense with Kevin Steele needs to get more credit. It was awesome. Yep. It was really good. Yeah, that's the funny thing about Gus is that, like, I, as as he's now at UCF, I'm starting to realize that we were kind of fundamentally – I'm not talking about you, just, like, as fans, we were fundamentally wrong about him, which is that he was actually kind of a defensive coach. Like, if you looked at what you were scared of when you played Auburn, yeah, you could talk about Nick Marshall, Bo Nix, all these guys, um, but they always had a terrifying defense. They always had, like, the the big dudes. They always had the good DBs, and that's what kept his, his coaching tenure going was the fact that the defense was always at least solid, and the offense was a fun experiment they always joked about, but that defense in 19 was – I mean, they limited Joe Burrow, our boy, to his worst game of that, that year. And if you think about it, too, the, the basic premise of the Gus defense – or the Gus offense rather doesn't exactly lend itself to complimentary football. And that's what they ended up having year, year over year. So yep. for, for Knicks, I remember Cole coming onto this show saying the reason Gus opted for, for Bo instead of a veteran, like the great, wonderful hall of fame. Some are saying is worthy uh, Malik Willis mm-hmm. or going to someone like Cord Sandberg. The reason that, that Gus was able to go with Bo and, and, and say, hey, I'm just going to put a true freshman out there week one. The surrounding pieces. He could take his licks early and figure things out while they were playing in some of these low-scoring games. And he would just trust the defense to be able to get enough stops. And then the hope would be eventually by the end of the season, he can go out and win a shootout for you. And kind of played out that way. Even though Auburn didn't end up playing in a college football playoff or anything like that or playing for an SEC championship, they still beat Bama that year. And they still did some really good things as a result of playing that defense. But that in itself is different from this Florida situation. Okay. Yep. It, it just, it just is unless Graham Mertz suffers preseason injury gets hurt week one, week two, I don't know, like a Jacob Eason type injury, something like that. Like Florida won't be turning to Lagway as the September starter. And if he does step into that role later in the season, remember Florida's last five games, as daunting as we have ever seen in the history of the sport, there is no margin for error for a first-time starter, a true freshman, no matter how talented, in that spot. So how does Billy approach that? I, I don't know. How, how do you walk that line of knowing that you need to win football games, 
while also showing people in charge that the future is bright and that they should be patient and that they should let Lagway develop. Because, yeah, like in Florida's ideal world, the way this thing works out is Graham Mertz takes another step. Lagwell plays like, well, Lagway plays well in relief. And Florida goes eight and four. And Billy is allowed to stick to his plan, right? That's this working. That is this thing being better than what we're going to be talking about in the preseason for Florida. Mm -hmm. That world might not exist. It, it just might not. Okay. I, I don't know that it does. There's certainly not enough to assume that that's on the horizon. I think we can agree on that yep. at this point, at least. We don't even know who's going to be calling plays yet. Okay. We, we have, we really don't know. We have a good Not idea. officially. Uh, yeah. I'd love to see what those odds are at this point. Billy's got to be minus 300, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Minus NFL coordinator. Maybe he oh, is waiting. Oh, no. All the good OCs have been hired. Guess I got to go call plays again. Hate that. Oh, well. Oh, darn. The oh, guy no. that we wanted is is gone. Tried to get uh, tried to get Ben Johnson from the NFL, but he wasn't going to leave the Detroit Lions unless he was given $15 million to become a head coach somewhere. Um, yeah, look. I think that this is a really, really difficult spot for us on the outside to look at this and see that path to stardom for Lagway or for him to give enough to Florida, those those decision makers to, to say, we need to, to stay with Billy because we need to, to see this Lagway thing through. Okay. Right. At the same time, this is going to sound weird and I want you to brace for this, but is it possible that Billy is sticking with an OC, with himself as the OC, and that he said to Lagway, look, I can tell you the exact type of offense we're going to run. I'm going to be the one running it. And maybe that appealed to him. Maybe, okay? It's possible. What really can't be questioned at this point, DJ Lagway has blind faith in his head coach. Very much, eh, we'll call it borderline blind faith in his head coach. I will question if he can do something that we've never seen before. I went back and looked at all the five-star quarterback recruits of the playoff era to try and find if there's just any other example like Lagway signing with a team in a, I don't want to say endless cycle, but in a cycle of consecutive losing seasons with a coach that's on everyone's hot seat list. Oh, so you were looking at Zillow.com. More or less. <laughs> You were looking at some dudes that changed area codes, some a mobile fellows. <laughs> yeah, like there's not a ton of five star quarterbacks. This was not the deep dive that I did the other day, so this didn't mm -hmm. take me, you know, a, an afternoon and a morning combined. But you know, it takes a little bit of time to figure this out. And I want it. I think it's worth sticking to the five star part of this because you can get into the oh, this blue chip quarterback recruit was billed as the savior. Once upon a time, Harrison Bailey was the savior of Tennessee football. All right, like. Mm -hmm. Being a five-star guy, it's different. It's different at the quarterback position. It, it just is. So, like, you could say, what about Will Greer? He was kind of in that spot. Not a five-star mm -hmm. guy, though. Top 50 overall recruit. He signed in that 2014 class at Florida. Must champs last year. But I, I just think the buildup for Lagway will be different. Even bigger than it was for, for Will Greer. So, the other oh, situation. I'll say this real quick before you get into five-stars. Because this – so, that's a good – 
It's a good question. I've been thinking about since you asked it, what's the most similar situation? And I do think, I mean, I think the answer is staring me right in the face. And I know he's not a five-star, but I mean, it's Anthony Richardson. That is a guy that came in. He was the number one, like, hopium guy. He's from Gainesville. You know what I'm saying? The fan base from day one was like, we guess, you know, I don't think from day one they were saying, let's bench Emory Jones. And I've I've said this. I really don't even think Mullen didn't. Like, when you think about how he played him against LSU in Georgia, I think he, he kind of did it at at, at the worst time, but almost too early. Like it was anyway, not going to get into that. We've done that a billion times, but I think that's as close as you're going to see, which is a coach that's on the way out, a quarterback that is his last grasp of like, okay, if this guy plays well, like the fans want to see him, let's throw him out there, get the fans to cheer, get them off my back. And obviously Mullen was kind of a jerk, so he managed it poorly. But yeah, I think that style of management is not the worst case, but not a good case for sure. Two things that are different. Okay. One is that the time Anthony Richardson signed with Florida – He's a four-star guy, but was he even a top 200 recruit? I don't think he was. Mm-mm. I don't think he was. He was still billed as extremely raw. And even yeah. CD, good old good old Chris Doring, who was as big of an Anthony Richardson fan as a recruit as anybody that I talked to, even he was like, yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's special, but he's got things that he's going to work through, and, and he's going to have to figure those things out. He was not in that spot as a true freshman. He was in that spot during his retro freshman year, his second season at Florida in 2021, when it was like, okay, then that became the narrative kind of in season. And it became, oh my God, this guy is so good. You can't keep him off the field. He could be the savior. We need to see what we have in him. So yeah, at this juncture, it's different. It eventually Mm -hmm. got to a place that's kind of similar, I would say. Yep. With the USF but, yeah. game. like, But that was like week two or three where it was like they knew from the time they saw him, we all knew that's something right there. We don't know what it is. And he never really did figure it out at Florida, right? But in the NFL, <laughs> he was something until he got hurt. Yeah, I mean, that's you know TBD on, on whether or not yeah. that works. It's, it's still such a small sample size with him just overall as a football player. So that's going to be – it's going to be tough yeah. to judge. But that's – okay, that's – that, that makes a little bit more sense when you kind of map out some of the stuff that, that – that eventually unfolded by the time that he was on campus, by the time that he was in year two. But in terms of like a guy that's stepping into that, mm-hmm. Sam Heward at Washington, mm, five-star quarterback. One. It's actually, on the surface, it might look good, but then the situation that you just brought up with Richardson, it developed into that. This one could not have been any further like removed from happening. Okay, like When Heward was at Washington, he came in as, you know, the the legacy guy. You know, his uncle was there. His dad was there. They were both quarterbacks for, for Washington in the 90s. Brock Heward, of course, is all over, all over football media in, in general right now. But Jimmy Lake also wasn't on the hot seat before 2021. Mm-hmm. And that, that's probably a key difference. Like, the, he showed up on campus, and then they fell apart. They were actually, like, 3-1 and one during the COVID-shortened season. So, it literally wasn't. And that was in his first season. So, it was a different set of circumstances. Heward now is at Cal Poly. I want to say at least that's where he transferred really yeah yeah funny enough Weird. that was the first example i thought of but i was like i don't know enough to just open my gums about this i'm glad you kept up because i remember he was kind of an uncharacteristic five-star and then you figured out the family connection well the family connection was obvious because the name's a little bit weird but i'm glad you kept up because that was one of my first thoughts I was like i wonder what happened to that guy cal poly or whatever that's there you go yeah i don't know i, I don't know the ins and outs of I don't, I don't have any any sort of boots on the ground knowledge of, of what exactly went wrong there why the guy didn't live up to it but um, there was a reason why they went after Michael Penix Jr. in the transfer portal. And yep. there was a reason why Heward last year was sitting there in a, in a weird spot, I think post-spring. And I remember even Florida, talking about Florida, would they go after somebody like him? And he was sitting there in the portal, 
and no power five teams were biting. It's like, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of telling. That seems really telling. So that situation, uh, not exactly an exact comp. Maybe, maybe this is the best one. JJ McCarthy, 2021. Okay. Five, five star at Michigan had to endure the Harbaugh rumors, which remember when the, t- the time he's signing, he's signing in December of 2020, right? And he's class. Which ones, Connor? Which Harbaugh rumors this time are we talking about? <laughs> 2020 was, oh my God, he's falling apart. You got to mm-hmm. fire this guy. That was, it was expected that Michigan was going to be done with him, not Harbaugh was right. going to be done with Michigan. So that, that was very much a coach on the hot seat entering 2021. He was all mm-hmm. over those hot seat lists. And then Michigan wins the Big Ten, goes to the playoff that year. McCarthy was the future. McNamara was always the starter. But McCarthy did get in. The impression of this the situation changed when Michigan got off to that great start. Suddenly it was, mm-hmm. oh, my God, is Michigan about to win the Big Ten? They go 7-0 and into that Michigan State game and they end up blowing a lead in that one. Mm-hmm. But – that was one that I kind of thought of. And that defense was so nasty with Hutchinson too that year. So it's I don't really know that that's a, a fair one. But what are, what are your thoughts on on that? Because that was one I kind of was like, oh, maybe I overlooked that. Honestly, yeah, great call. Like, I, I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm not about the Harbaugh rumors because it was, okay, is he cheating? Is he leaving for the NFL? Are they done with him? Is he done for them? Is he cheating again? So, yeah, it's actually really good to zero in and say, yeah, I mean, they were, they were kind of going through some funky stuff back then. And Harbaugh is a guy that – Kind of like, you know, Brian Kelly in a way where when things are going well, it's like, ah, oh, we love this guy. And when they're going terribly, everybody turns immediately. And it's good to remember how bad it was then because, yeah, what, a season or two of Jim Har- at a half of J- Jim Harbaugh struggling and suddenly everyone's like, I hate this guy. He's a jerk. So, yeah, it was very close to the precipice. And you're right. That was a little bit of hopium. Like you said, McNamara played well enough to where it was like, uh, we're going to leave this guy in. They didn't need to go to him. But we'll never know, you know, if he hadn't, what would have happened? Yeah. I, like, <sighs> I think that 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 situation probably the closest of any five star that that I can think of, just in terms of uh, proud program, high expectations, coach on the hot seat. You're, I mean, I think McCarthy was rated higher than any quarterback in in the Harbaugh era, and that that signed with Michigan too, which mm-hmm. that's definitely part of it. And when they lost to Georgia in the playoff. The silver lining for Michigan fans is, oh, okay, well, this is going to tell Harbaugh that you got to move on from Cade McNamara. This is when you're going to turn to J.J. McCarthy. You have to have that five-star guy in in a spot like this. So maybe maybe there is some of that there, but that only lasted for a certain amount of time. Um, and, again, the, the, the surroundings are just different. They just are. Yep. Michigan's surroundings on that defense were still really good, even though they were bad in 2020. But they still had a lot of talent coming back, and they were expected to be good. Everything that everything that we look at with this Florida team, I think we have questions about. I, I do. Like it's just questions all over the place. Trey Wilson might be really good. He might be awesome and worth the price yeah. of admission. Montreal Johnson, again, these these might be all SEC type players. They very well could. They could they could have a couple of guys on defense like that too. Florida lost two of their best players to the portal. Mm-hmm. Manny Allen and, and Etienne, obviously. And it's hard to sit here and have faith in a defense that's been disappointing, not just last year, but last four years, last four years, bad Florida defenses. Yep. Everything that Lagway does will be magnified because of that. And I think he knows it. I, I do. I think this is someone who understands his situation 
and is trying to let it fuel him to be a college ready player from the jump. I don't know that every five star, every five star can say, I want to play immediately. I want to do this. I want to do that immediately. They don't always do the right things to be able to set themselves up for that kind of success and to Mm -hmm. show their head coach, this is why I deserve to play and having that right mental makeup. It's just not a given. And I think so far, based on what we've seen from him, he has passed that test. I've said it a lot, but it's still not ideal if you're turning to a true freshman quarterback from the jump. And it probably says something about your quarterback room. Again, Florida is not expected to do that. And real quick, before I forget, I thought of a couple as you were saying that, because with the Michigan one, it made me realize that could have been Texas with Arch Manning, because we also had a similar podcast with him. But they, obviously, Ewers plays amazing, wins Alabama. We never have a second thought. A guy that kind of fit that path, interestingly, Caleb Williams of Oklahoma. Because remember, they had Spencer Rattler. He took he was like the number one player in America, as good as Rattler was. And I'm not comparing Mertz and Rattler for, as recruits or whatever. But that was the hopium that Lincoln Riley was able to sell was, yeah, but look at Caleb Williams. But then he just stopped caring and stopped selling anything, you know, when they lost to Oklahoma State or whatever. And so I think he was trying to pull that move with Caleb Williams. And then he eventually just checked out and was like, this isn't worth my time. No, that, that one's different because Riley wasn't – he's not on the hot seat. He's not on the hot seat. And Caleb Williams was preseason number one overall – or not Caleb Williams. Spencer Rattler was preseason number yep. one overall player in, in the mock drafts going yep. into that 2021 season when Caleb Williams was a freshman. Nothing nothing had failed at yep. Oklahoma necessarily. And Rattler finished that 2020 season really, really well. He smacked mm-hmm. Florida, obviously, in the bowl game. So I don't, I don't know that that one's, that one's fair right. either. And when he, when he follows him to USC, it's kind of like, well, this is – this is like what we talk about with, with the Hackenberg thing. It's like you're, you're trying to, to, to be the start and rebuild a program. So I don't even know if that if that one's fair. Go back go back and look at the, the quarterback class of, of 2019. If you want a fun little roller coaster of emotions with some of the guys that are sandwiched in between others, We've got Ryan Halinski sandwiched in there. Oh, like yeah. it, it, gets we- it gets weird in a hurry with that 2019 class, which also includes Bo Nix, obviously. So again, like not to – not to hate on it, it's just really tough to find anything that's that's kind of similar because we can right. p- we could piece a couple of things together, but you got to remember the circumstances going into it. And that's why I want to talk about this now yep. is because we know what yep. we're saying about Billy Napier in Florida now and how this this is all being viewed, you know, on the heels of the, the SEC scheduling release and all those different things. So um, it's even like I was trying to think the ideal path for success. People always say like. Oh, well, you know, a true freshman can have success in college football. True. Agreed. hundred percent. Trevor Lawrence had success as a true freshman in college football, won a national championship. Even he was sharing duties with Kelly Bryant in that Mm -hmm. first month before he eventually took over the starting job. If Florida had won eight, nine games this year, you could probably play around with something like that if you're Billy Napier. And it was really back and forth with how those guys were trading series. You can go back and watch that AM game that they played in College Station in 2018 and kind of look at the rotation. It was I, I thought it was pretty clear by the end of that day that Trevor Lawrence was better than Kelly Bryant. Not really a bold yeah. statement, but um, better than the program, Kelly Bryant as well. But what you can't have, you, you just absolutely can't have if you're Billy Napier, is a 3-2 and two start wherein you have someone making true freshman mistakes. That is the worst case scenario for you in this spot. 
Well, you someone's don't have... going to be making true freshman mistakes on Florida. Now, will that be a quarterback? That's the question. But the DBs will be making true freshman mistakes. I'm here to tell you right now. <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of true freshmen that are that it looks like are going to be playing for this Florida team, or maybe even second year guys as well, mm-hmm. underclassmen galore. After it felt like that's that's what we were talking about all this year as well. Mm-hmm. It's like I just don't think that Florida has the team around Lagway to overcome that. If that's the path that that Billy says is like, I'm going to have like pretty close to split reps with these guys. Um, that's still putting a lot of faith in the rest of your team. And this isn't 2017 Jake Fromm, who was handing the ball off to Nick Chubb, Sony Michelle, DeAndre Swift. He's got Roquan Smith leading that defense that was just lights out that year to get Georgia to a national championship game. It's mm-hmm. not 2016 Jalen Hurts, who had the best team in America in the trenches, and also, by the way, a backfield of Bo Scarborough, Damian Harris, Josh Jacobs. Like This, this isn't that. This is 2024 Florida who was just trying to have a winning season again and doing it against the most daunting schedule in college football, doing that at a place that has won national championships in the 21st century that has three division titles in the playoff era. It is not easy. It's just not going to be easy. Being a Florida quarterback is on the short list. I would probably have to come up with a real, a real list and not just do it in the lazy way that others do it. In my opinion, in this profession, sometimes, um, Florida's on the short list for the most pressure-packed jobs there are in, mm-hmm. in college football. As high profile as it gets, being being in that spot as a Florida quarterback, doesn't matter if your team is awful, it is always going to be scrutinized in a different sort of way. With a five-star true freshman savior, whatever you want to call it, DJ Lagway, and a coach that is on the hot seat, we are going to see that cranked up to a new level. It's, it's just going to be different. And the sense of urgency is different now than it was five years ago because of all the, the, the undergrad transfer restrictions that have been loosened. And because you could wake up a year from now, Florida fans, and you'd be like, crap, DJ Lagway is making money to go somewhere else. Like that can very much happen. And it puts so much pressure on what they're trying to do in year one. I mean, you could even have a situation in theory, in theory, where let's say Florida is actually pretty good on offense and they're eight and four, something like that. But Lagway doesn't like the way that he's being used in the offense. And it's a Justin Fields, Georgia type situation where mm-hmm. he's like, well, no, I'm, I'm going to peace out. I'm going to hit the portal and make money and find an offense that better suits my skill set. I wouldn't bank on that. I don't think that's going to happen because Lagway committed to Napier and this is Mertz's last season of eligibility. But I don't think you could rule anything out when it comes to NIL. I really don't. I, like yep. That's still on the table. It, it would be a lot more fun if DJ Lagway was just awesome. It, it really would yeah. be. I'll, I'll say that. I don't get any more or less money to do this job if Lagway barely plays, okay? Like, if that happens and Billy gets fired and Lagway hits the portal, I, my, my day, my life is not changing. So I'm admitting my, I'm trying to get my biases out there. But seeing someone step in this spot, with as steep of an uphill climb and watching him reach to the top of that mountain, whatever that may be for Florida would be incredibly entertaining. And it'd be well-earned if he could do that. So, you know what? I am here for the DJ Lagway era at Florida. I'm excited for it. Yeah, same. I'm, I'm right there with you. Like, I just want to watch that dude play football, you know, and I think you hit on the NIL part of it, which is a huge deal. And part of it sets up for why it's not as risky to be in this very, nuanced situation which is that if you go commit to a program before the portal 
you know, you got to do a lot of stuff to get out of there if Billy Napier gets fired. Whereas now it's like, you know, I can honor my commitment and be a stand-up guy for a year. And if Billy doesn't hold up his part of it, or if he gets fired, even if I like him, you know, I'm out of here because I'm, my commitment was to that man right there. And I held up my end of the bargain and no one would fault me for it. Like no Florida fan, if, if they win six, you know, five, six games and Billy Napier gets fired, no Florida fan would go, damn, Lagway is leaving. What a, what a traitor. You know, they'd go, all right, you know, you gave us a shot, you tried it out. And so the yeah, PR, yeah, like the, in the PR part of it is, you know what, at least the kid gave it a shot. At least we didn't say what if. And yeah, I mean, as far as the Lagway stuff, you guys, I was actually just talking to my mom about this. Like, something I've said on here a ton is, you know, uh, if you have, you know, these guys in the program that you're going to say, they're from the old admin, they're losers, whatever, get the losers out of there, let the young guys play. And I'm not necessarily calling Graham Mertz a loser, but he is a game manager. Last time we talked, you know, with Cam Newton's thing where he said, there's a game manager and there's a game changer. DJ Lagway, just based on what I've seen on tape, is probably going to be a game changer. Maybe not next year, but maybe just the year after that. You know, Looks, it, looks it, like it. Yeah. You're not yeah. getting game manager tags if you're, you know, a five-star guy. Like, that's just not supposed yep. to be. That's not supposed to be the billing coming in. Yeah. hundred percent. And, you know, he doesn't even profile as like a, you know, Jake Fromm style guy where it's like, yeah, you can make some of the throws. You can hit those intermediate passes, but you're going to take care of the football. He's going to sling that thing. And that's kind of a little bit scary. But I mean, for a guy like Billy Napier, who's going to go forward on fourth and 15, you know, on his side of the field, maybe that stuff doesn't scare him as much. Honestly, this is a perfect quarterback for him because they're both send it mentality guys. They're go forward and fourth down. They're be bold and brash. Let it, let it sling. And that's what they've missed out on is talent at the quarterback position. And they had Anthony Richardson. That was talent, right? But he couldn't, whatever happened with Anthony Richardson, he was not getting developed at Florida. Not going to blame him totally. But point being, you know, I'm of the mentality that you have to sell a little bit of that hopium. You know, if Florida is struggling, and, and, and we've already talked about this with Florida's schedule, I said, get those young guys ready because they're going to be needed down the stretch. No matter how you slice it, those, those guys, somebody will get hurt, somebody will get tired, somebody will not be playing, and young guys are going to have to step up just because that roster is so thin. So if you're already prepared to do that on defense, if you're already prepared to do that on the offensive line where they're getting some of these guys, well, then I would just lean all the way into it and say, hey, let's, like, if Mertz isn't really, like, the guy, if, if Mertz hasn't taken a clear step this offseason, and he's still the guy we've seen this whole time, let's at least do a little bit of the Anthony Richardson, get him out there and say, look, give me another year. I'll get this guy right. This guy loves me. If you lose me, you, lo you lose this guy. And I think that could be enough for Billy because I would rather lose fun. You know what I'm saying? If you're going to lose, lose fun. That's why I wasn't that, like, angry at LSU this year because it was fun the whole time. It was annoying that they wasted a Heisman, but it wasn't like, you know, a losing season in 2014 where they couldn't move the ball. I would rather have Lagway out there and have 15 picks, but 20 something touchdowns. And every time he gets in, the DBs start backing off, right? Because when Merch is in, those DBs are in the box. They're looking at Merch kind of like, I know where you're going with this. It's a, it's going to be a hospital ball. <laughs> it's it's going to be over the middle. I'm going to hit this guy in the hands. It's going to like get jarred loose if I get my shoulder down right. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I think that fear that a guy like Lagway can put in the defense, you got to at least use that the way they use Steph's gravity and say, this guy's coming off the bench. Your DBs need to back up because – he doesn't care. He's got, he's going to be here or he's not, but you're not going to bench him because he's not playing, you know? I wonder what that leash looks like. I really do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know that Billy knows at this point. You're oh, never yeah. bracing for, for your starting quarterback to struggle, but I wonder internally what it really looks like because again, I, I always talk about how the, the vibe and how much that changed when you suffer that, that second loss for mm -hmm. Florida the second loss this season, the way that it sets up, if you lose that second game before the first seven is over, right? You know that that is 
oh boy, we're in for mm-hmm. it. We're, we are absolutely in for it. And so is it, hey, you get that second, like if that second loss happens, then that's when you turn to Lagway? Maybe. I don't know. It, it, it really depends on a lot of different factors. And he's going to have an opportunity now where he's getting there and, and he's got a chance to to win over those guys, which that's that's the thing I worry about least. I, I think he's already looking like the guy that's going to command the locker room and do all those different things. And it's not to say that Mertz hasn't done that as well. It seems like everybody is, has kind of stood up for him and he's he's taken ownership of that. I give him a lot of credit. I've already admitted that Mertz, even though he does – run more of the, the proverbial game manager type offense. He is still better, a better player than I thought he was going to be, which is why I'm not sitting here saying, Billy, you must start Lagway week one. I'm not saying that. Right. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a decision to make by late September. And if it is, then how do you manage that? And how do you keep that guy looking, trying to look like the best version of himself while also rec- recognizing that it's still a wins and losses business and that yep. is what's going to define Billy Napier's time, especially in year three. And I, I want to say, gosh, this is such a good exercise because this is so unique. Um, all right. Our boy Nico at uh, Tennessee. What's his last name? Iamaleava. Iamaleava, right? That's not even close. You can not do better even than close. That. You know what? Like I said, when he plays, that's what I said with Tua. When he plays, I'll, I'll get his name. Uyunglele figured it out because he started playing. Anyway. Crushed so, Will. Look at that. That's what I'm saying. I'm not going to learn your name if it's hard if you're not playing. <laughs> that's my rule. So anyway, he was a guy who Hypo has just resurrected Tennessee football, right? So they didn't have to play him. Now, yeah. Hypo, if, if he was in a Butch Jones, Jeremy Pruitt situation, he's probably coming in. But a better situation to look at, like I said, is Sark. Because Sark, I mean, one of, if not his best win at the time he got Arch Manning was Billy Napier at UL, right? Like he is not, he had not done anything at that point. He, we were still, it was another Texas team that, you know, they almost beat Alabama, oh, but they couldn't move the ball against TCU. They're doing all this stuff. So point being, you know, we thought and, and fans and especially national guys are saying, let's get Arch in. So the best case scenario, and I do want to bring this up, is that Graham Mertz just balls. I mean, if Billy Napier, if you ask Billy Napier, yeah. what do you want to happen? He would say, I hope Graham Mertz balls. Because then he's only going to be there for a year. Lagway obviously has not promised a starting job, or we would have heard it by now. He would have said, looked into the camera and said, I'm coming here to start. We haven't heard that. And so knowing that Mertz is going to be the guy, what you'd want is Billy is to say, look how I developed Mertz after two years, you know, and he might have that jump like a Jaden Daniels did, like a Bo Nix did, right, in year two, where you go, yep. okay, look what I did for this guy. Look, and that's honestly the dream if you're Florida is to not really see DJ Lagway. Now, being practical people, you know, we're going to, we know that that's probably not going to be the case with this defense because even a great Graham Mertz probably is not slinging that thing the way that, you know, some of these guys were. But I just want to be clear what Billy wants would be to develop Mertz, you know, in more of a runway than he had with Richardson and say, look, I am the QB whisperer. I am the QB developer. I can take Mertz from a guy we we're all laughing at to, Oh, maybe he'll get drafted day three. Maybe he'll have a little cup of coffee in the NFL or whatever. And then now I got Lagway. So y'all better not fire me because if you give me two, three years of Lagway, now I'm good. I want to say that because I don't want to be Mr. Oh, let's start him immediately. But if Graham Mertz goes out and proceeds to continue to be Graham Mertz, I've seen enough of that person. If we get two, three games in and he's still kind of hold, not holding the offense back, but managing the games when the defense is blowing it open, then we got we to make a change. If they don't pass protect better, neither of those guys are going to have a chance. Yep. That's probably also the thing that I should have brought up here is if Florida doesn't get a whole lot better, it's not going to matter what plays Billy's drawn up or his future offensive coordinator, if he's going to hire one, uh, they need to pass protect better. They just do. They need more continuity on that offensive line. 
who knows if they're going to be in the post spring market, if they're going to base some of those evaluations on that. But no matter what, we've seen enough from Graham Mertz where even Florida fans who are saying that this guy's really good, you've seen enough of him to know you got to protect that guy because if you don't, he's not going to make it happen for you. And with a true freshman in that spot, you don't want him to fall into some of those bad habits, some of those bad habits that we talked about with Bo Nix. And you don't want a guy that's drifting off to his right and all of a sudden mm-hmm. the mechanics are, are an issue and, and he's sensing pressure that isn't really there. So, look, the best version of DJ Lagway – means that Billy Napier keeps his job. That's pretty cut and dry at this point. And I don't know if there is a a whole lot of situations we're going to look across college football and say that player is his future and what he shows us this year is going to be synonymous with that coach's job security. But with Lagway, Mm -hmm. just kind of feels like that at this point. Barring, of course, Graham Mertz doing the new rage in college football, year five starter, balls out. Who knows? Who knows? Yep. And and I will say this too really quick. Like one thing that does make this different is something we've seen a heck of a lot. Heck, we've seen Bobby Petrino do this at two different places now is how hard it is to find coaches to go uproot their families when your head coach is on the hot seat, right? And, you know, we saw that with LSU. I always talk about, like, when I'm picking on when I'm picking on a team, I like to go to LSU. That's a lot of the reason why I talk about them so much. But if you look at 2021, when everybody kind of knew Coach O was on the way out, could not find coordinators at LSU. Yep. If you're Florida and your options are yourself or Joe Sixpack at, you know, East West State, I would just keep yourself at that point and be like, look, DJ, I got you. I'm not going to, you know, take away. I, I can promise you X, Y, and Z. If you can't go get that guy who really will make a difference, it's better to just just die on your sword and let it be your offense and have you at the keys at this point, right, after all the coaching hires have been made, after signing day, all that, than to go, yeah, let me just go grab the quarterback's coach from the Chargers or whatever. It's like, that well, doesn't yeah. work. I'm here to tell you right now. But those are the options you're looking at because nobody is going to go take an OC job when they see the schedule. They see Billy Napier's record. They see I'm coming into a quarterback controversy. So I would honestly say if you're Billy, dude, at this point, you might just be the OC and live or die, sink or swim. I, I would hate that. I would hate that in so many ways. Because it's not just about the offense. Not just about the offense. I know we've talked yeah. about this before. And we, I mean, Hayes and I got into this as well. Um, just about all the different CEO things that you have to worry about and that you have to deal with. And when you're, a problem, when you're a team that has so many mental mistakes in a season, I don't care if your offense is really good. As a head coach, you are coming short in other very key areas that you cannot afford to come short in. Yep, And that to me is, is why that, that would push me to want to hire an OC, but obviously I'm looking at this on the outside and not Billy Napier digging my heels in. This is fascinating. This is, this is, I'm glad you brought it because there are so many parts of it. Yeah. It's like, you know, harder to get recruits, harder to get coaches, harder to even possibly get transfers. But once that moment, it's all a PR business, right? Like it, when, when Billy Napier was hired, it was everybody. It was Corey Raymond. It was all the five stars or Shamars, you know, guys were trying to flip at the last second. It was, oh, if we had more time. And so, yeah, I think that just goes to show he's not a fundamentally different person or coach, but the tides have just kind of changed. And it's, it's to look at a guy and be certain on one end and then be certain on the other end, other end the way that we are. It's just so crazy because he hasn't shown anything but what he's been his whole career, which is a brash guy, trusts himself a little bit too much. So, yeah, I'm I'm fascinated. This could be the beginning of the resurgence of Florida football or it could be the end of the Billy Napier tenure of Florida football. That's it, you know? The, the resurgence or the last stand, one of those two things. Yeah. That's what, that's what it feels like for, for Billy. But very, very interesting, something we'll talk about a lot throughout the offseason. All right, let's kick it to Brett Merriman. You might know that name from, from Barstool a few years back. Uh, former office manager, Brett, as some might remember him. 
um, but also a huge Ole Miss fan, listener of the show, um, someone who just loves college football. And Chip Kelly may or may not have read Brett's proposal from a couple of months ago on how to fix <laughs> the sport and apply it to that rant that went super, super viral over the weekend. So great conversation with him. Let's kick it to Brett. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Brett Merriman of Watch Media. Uh, Brett, every once in a while, I'll hear something that, you know, a coach will say, or maybe I'll hear something on a broadcast, and I'll do the Leonardo DiCaprio gif where I'm like, I, I, I'm pretty sure that I that person, whoever said that, got that from something that I said or wrote. When you heard Chip Kelly's rants on fixing college football, how convinced were you that he read your article from October outlining a lot of those same points? Connor, it was the reason I reached out to you. Uh, basically, I was I was dumbfounded. I was I was very excited that Chip had perused my material. No, all kidding aside, it, it was it was fun to see a coach uh, kind of putting out in, in the universe what I had put on paper a couple months ago back in October. I imagine you were probably doing the same exact thing though. Like you're, you're getting up from your couch. You're like, wait a minute. No, no, no. This is, this is a, a lot of what I've already laid out. Cause if you Google, I fixed college football, you can read all this. So anybody that wants to kind of follow along with some of the things that, that we'll dig into the first line in there though, is you saying, don't complain about a problem without providing a solution. I read that and I did the Leonardo DiCaprio meme because I say all the time, don't present a problem without providing a solution. So we're just back and forth like, look, this, but this is this is what we need. We need collective, you know, collective minds getting together and trying to figure out some sort of these solutions and understanding that this is something that you put together over the course of a week. There are a lot of different things that um, would have to happen in order for obviously this this world to exist. But let's let's dig into it. The, one of the parts that I think is really interesting, the National College Football Association that operates essentially with only football interests, much like the college football playoff, how do you convince commissioners, ADs, and presidents to to want to give up power and, and sign on for something like that? Yeah, that's. I kind of start the article, too, with, with a bunch of assumptions, one of them being that ADs and, and administrators sort of have to accept this sight unseen. I think you need to just – you almost need to strong arm at some point. You need an organization that functions as – sort of a federal college football association, which I kind of built into the NCFA there. Um, and, and then you then you have to carrot and stick with with money and say, basically, OK, if we're going to rip up this TV contract and your, your conference is no longer uh, benefiting financially from this, there has to be something else following up immediately. So one of the one of the creative ways that kind of get around that is basically saying, all right, well, if you're an SEC official now, you kind of get first dibs at the Southern Conference uh, being a Southern Conference official, sort of the Pac-12 ends up getting squeezed out there, but uh, we kind of see that happening anyway. But yeah, it's one of those things that it, it's not a perfect system, but I in, kind of envisioned conference officials sort of moving into new positions uh, under a general, like a, a federally run uh, central entity. And I think you could cover the cost of that with a new TV contract, right? I mean, like that's that, that's kind of the the thing, the, the answer to to all the money questions because we got to this place because of money. So money has to be part of the, the solution and giving that money up for the SEC and the Big Ten right now is the part that is so tough to get past because they would need to get more money with any sort of collective contract. The thing that Chip Kelly also talked about as well of like, hey, if everybody gets on board and we all can approach this like the NFL, then they will actually make more money by, by doing it this way 
if you kind of break it down with some of the other media sponsors, the way that you could you could even have the sponsored National College Football Playoff Association that's presented by Amazon or, or whatever it may be. Like, how would you kind of be able like to, to be able what, what's the best negotiating power for that? The collective college football as a whole, a sport that is felt so regional. But in this sense, you'd be selling it nationally to try and say this is why this contract would benefit all these different TV networks. Exactly. I mean, you're creating NFL light in, in essence and basically saying that the product uh, as a whole is going to be so much stronger than a regionally sort of greedy lattice of, of conferences as, as it functions today. So if you make something that's sort of nationally governed, those contracts can be divvied out conference by conference. Obviously, you're going to have brands that are you know more powerful, maybe in the South and the, and the Big Ten, or I call it the Northern Conference in, in this case. So you just kind of you leverage that collective power against the streaming services against the networks against everybody so that you do bring uh, a financial reward that ends up being more than even something you could have today so I, I sort of envision you know college football is x plus x plus x you know right now but if you were to take the, the sum of the parts would be excuse me the sum of the whole would be greater than the sum of the parts in this in this essence basically because you're 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 taking the product as it is adding everything else in underneath, whether that's the media sponsorships from like kind of a, a conference social side of things or the product on the field or the naming rights to XYZ Bowl that I, I kind of envision. But yeah, you, you end up with a system where the the entire payout has to be larger than what it is currently. And that's what I think this does. The four regional super conferences for travel purposes it makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you kind of look at it the way that you have this broken down on the map. You're like, yeah, okay, that that all that all would be way better. And if these schools of UCLA and USC and Oregon, Washington, if they're not traveling to to Piscataway, New Jersey, yeah, like everybody I think has kind of looked at that going, hmm, we've messed up at some point. And your regional conferences, these super conferences with 16 teams would correct that. My only issue is that you put my alma mater as a tier two program, Indiana. <laughs> so explain, because like essentially what you're doing is relegating schools like Indiana, Minnesota, Northwestern, Vandy, Wake Forest, others to tier two and saying that you wouldn't get a part of that tier one, which relegation for college football has been kind of thrown out with the, the Super League and stuff. But it kind of explain the, the logic that would go into that. Yeah. So it's it's because I don't like your team specifically. Uh, yeah. And if your team is tier two, it's it's absolutely because I just have a personal vendetta. No, it's it's sort of it, it would come down to rankings and sort of a combined brand awareness play. That would be something where you have to if you're going to tear this off and 64 sort of makes sense for that, because it's kind of where you get a, a pretty even talent split. And then you have to provide some sort of way in and some sort of way out. And that's what I do saying there's there's a radical system of. of pro or excuse me, relegation and promotion. And it's if you win your tier, uh, if you win your tier conference or you lose it for that matter, you have basically the opportunity to play for your life and, and play for that next level of money. Um, and and if you win, you you move on, obviously, and, and you go into this next tier. And if you lose, and, and I think I have like a, a Duke, for example, not to throw the Blue Devils under the bus, but if they came in last and they lost their sort of their toilet bowl game, if you will, they dropped out. And um, I think that's a system that that incentivize people to like, okay, if we were, if we were put in tier two to begin with, if we're Minnesota or Indiana, we still have an opportunity to get there. It's not going to be easy, but to access that higher, you know, higher salary cap, the higher money disbursements, et cetera. We now have an incentive to still, you know, put money into college football so that we can uh, eventually maybe make it back to a tier one 
system. And, and also I kind of think I had too is like, you can still have a tier two national champion. It would basically be like a group of five national champion today, which I know has been thrown around as well. So uh, it provides a couple different incentives, whether it's winning or financially. And um, it's just something that would be a tough pill to swallow for, I think, 64 plus ADs out there pretty, pretty immediately. Yeah, that would be that. That would be a, a really tough sell to be like. Wait, what do you mean we're starting at, at tier two? Like we we've made this amount of money, we've been able to compete for this national championship, and then you tell us that we actually have to work our way back into <laughs> into the tier one. That would uh, that that would be that'd be really tough. And I always say to realignment in the way that this has happened with TV contracts, it's not as simple as oh, team X wins ten games, therefore this is why they want to go into this conference. They want these TV contracts in place so that it does not necessarily because they think they can win a national championship, but because they want to be safe when they don't. And that, I think, is the, the floor that so many of these programs have turned to and why a, in Indiana, a Northwestern, they use these contracts to fund all of these other athletic programs within, you know, within the university. So that'd be the, the toughest thing. And you'd be obviously like, just from a legal standpoint, the, the amount of things that you'd have to work through from like a, a lawsuit, uh, you know, lawyers that would be involved. That that brings me to my next question. I, I'm not sure. I might have missed this part in there. How would you crack the grant of rights deal in the ACC to, to get that voided? Because that could be the holdup in this entire thing with that lasting through 2036. I think there's one sort of major assumption is that if, if we're doing this, you are tearing up existing contracts that however ironclad they may currently be. And, and basically saying, if we tear this up, we're buying out this contract. I don't know where you're getting this money from to do this. Obviously, it's a pie in the sky scenario to begin with, but you're going to have to to rip something that's pretty ironclad up. <clears throat> and in the case of the ACC, ideally, you end up with uh, competitive nature in the, in the future with either the Northern or Southern Conference in that case that, that balances it out in the long run. But uh, short-sightedness, I, I think, is one of those uh, features, not budge, of college football. And we've uh, we've seen that lately. Right. You just described the, the dream scenario for the ACC. Uh, this, this contract, <laughs> just rip it up. Don't worry about it. Just rip just, it up. Yeah, who cares? Yeah. All these lawyers. Price, right? Yeah, these, these lawyers that have spent thousands and thousands of hours looking for every possible loophole in the grant of rights deal, they're told, hey, this guy's got a solution, and literally all we have to do is just rip up this contract. It's good. <laughs> it's good. It's just, I love it, just man. Really, yeah, just really, really make quick work of it. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I think if you provide enough of an incentive or enough of a, a, a legal scenario where you can do something like that, I mean, you're, in, you're creating competition for other teams. Like, I don't think Bama would be super happy about that, or, or even like in Ohio State, because now you have... Uh, I don't know, a Boston College team that was once number two in the nation, Connor, back in the Matt Ryan days. You, you are creating, in, in essence, uh, more competition. But I think there's there's people that love that. There's people that hate that. There's people that, that say, well, you know, if we're going to have a non-con against, you know, Michigan's playing uh, UCLA or somebody like that or USC, uh, if we're going to schedule non-con like that, then then why are why 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 are we adding more competition? And that's basically this sort of the scheduling piece of this, this scenario uh, fixes that as well. Yeah, because it needs to be a little bit more of a – there needs to be more um, governance over teams playing specific regions of the country and having some sort of rotating thing. That That's something that I would like to see taken from the NFL is like this, this rotating out-of-conference deal. But what you have described for the playoff is also really intriguing because it actually fuels competition 
within the conferences that are pushed towards the postseason. So that was probably a confusing way for me to describe it, but <laughs> you would still have a four-team playoff organized by the National College Football uh, Association, the, the NCFA, which just sounds like a very real acronym already. I'm like convinced <laughs> that's already there. But no, I may have tried the trademark on that one. Yeah, like I don't, I don't blame you. That that's legit. I think you could just start calling things that, and and nobody would would necessarily push back. But you would essentially have a six team playoff among each of these super conferences. So a six team playoff involving each of these sixteen team regional conferences, wherein the top two seeds within that would get a buy, and then that would be essentially how you would play out a conference championship. The winner of these four super conferences, these regional super conferences would play for a college football playoff national championship after an 11 game regular season. That's a creative solution to the playoff that I actually, that I actually really like, which would kind of combine the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Exactly. And that's kind of the idea is get more teams involved. So if you are uh, an Ole Miss or if you are sort of a, a, a down year or maybe even a Purdue, for example, you can get in that top six within your conference and then anything can happen, right? And and the 11-game regular season, everybody's like, oh, we, we have to play 12. And you are going to play a guaranteed 12 games. In this system, you, you either make the playoffs or you sort of play your equal seed uh, where you ended up in a, a traditional bowl game. And you also have a preseason game in this system that doesn't count towards your record. So you are still getting revenue from that game. You can still sign a TV contract to, to broadcast that game. And and maybe that's an opportunity, like I mentioned, kind of to, to rest your guys and, and figure out position battles because the NFL has a – preseason for a reason. I know people don't necessarily love it as, a, as from a player standpoint, but it, it would help things be, be figured out. So it just kind of incentivizes, you know, 24 teams make the playoffs in this scenario versus a traditional 12. Uh, and that's sort of more or less the top third of the league. And if you play as well as, as you need to get into, they'd be in the top third of of uh, of the, the tier one of college football. I think you should have a shot. Um, the buys protect the, the regular season for the for the first and second teams, and then you basically play, then it becomes Omaha, right? You're super regional, and then you go to a Final Four, more or less. That'd be entertaining. You could sell the crap out of that. I mean, you, you really oh, yeah. could. I that that would be and, and especially too now that we've we've gotten away from the original stance that the NCAA had of oh well you can't schedule these games during finals. It's like, well, next year we're gonna have college football playoff games on December twentieth. So I, like miss me with that entire argument that they used to to once make doesn't make sense anymore. You would think all of this that you're that you've outlined here, which again, go check it out, watch media. I mean, if you Google I fix college football again, you can find this. Um, but you would think that you personally are some Fresno State fan or something like that, or, or you're just trying to draw up different ways, or maybe like a lower lower end of the tier one type school. But you're in a spot as an Ole Miss fan where you might actually be the fan base that could benefit the most from the 12 team playoff in the future of what college football looks like. You kind of thought about that. There's a little bit of irony in what you're probably about to experience from that side of the spectrum. Oh, of course, uh, of course. And, and basically it's giving, it's giving those teams a chance giving them an opportunity, which everybody has an opportunity, right? It's just don't lose. Uh, well, you know, Except just win all your games. Specific, one, <laughs> except for one very specific situation that might True. have happened this year, yeah. um, but it gives like as an Ole Miss fan, right? It, we we as a team would be in the playoff this year, and it, it's such a cool opportunity, right, for for that to exist. And this just gives more hope, and and it, the hopium, Connor, is is one of the most marketable uh, things in the world. 
And so if you, you know, you and I might not see dollar signs, but Hopium is certainly seen as, uh, by his conference officials as dollar signs. So you're, you're just providing more opportunities to, to get into the dance. And uh, I, I think we see that with the March Madness tournament. And that's the one thing the NCAA, I think, does a pretty good job with as a federally or, or you know, kind of a nationally governed body. Uh, but this just kind of plays off of that in a way. And, and yet, you're right, you're giving your Fresno State fan base a chance. You're giving a, a Purdue or a Maryland fan base a chance. And I think that's... Uh, that's something that was certainly where my heart was in this, but then Ole Miss goes on the run that they do, and and you say, well, now now we're the one of the big dogs, and maybe we don't need to expand this anymore. <laughs> okay, on a scale of one to ten, what's what's the excitement level for for Ole Miss fans, knowing what we've just talked about here? The playoff is indeed expanding. As of right now, they have not taken on your your proposal and applied it to all elements of this sport, but you know, TBD on that. Uh, just what, what's it like as an Ole Miss fan, knowing? that Lane has dominated the portal in ways that I, I don't think anybody has to this point and feeling like this team next year with the way that it sets up, not having to play Bama, like even in an expanded, more difficult SEC, th this could be a, a really ideal time to be an Ole Miss fan. Yeah, the excitement level is a 12. I mean, whatever whatever is higher than 10, it's going to be a trendy pick uh, by, by everybody. Uh, maybe not you giving them six wins again, Connor. I don't know if oh, that's going to be the case. Uh, that was rough. That was rough. <laughs> but no, it's it's really what Lane did, and I think this is he 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 called it. He basically a year and a half ago says, "Well, we're we're, we're you know we're the small ballers. We can't do this. We can't do that. We don't have." He, he spoke it into existence from an Ole Miss standpoint, where people either get on board or we're going to fall apart. We're going to be uh, like some other programs that haven't embraced NIL, that haven't embraced the portal. And, and they're going backwards. And Ole Miss decided very early on to get not only people who are donating $21 a month to the Grove Collective and, and getting a mass of them, but also getting the, the big guys on board. And Ole Miss obviously doesn't have as many as a, as a Georgia or a Bama or an A&M. And that's, that, that's kind of fine in this world as long as you're using your, your, your NIL correctly and, and efficiently, I think is the thing. It's sort of a, a modern day money ball down there in Oxford. But what what they've done a really good job with is, is saying, okay, we still need to get high school guys in the door. And they've gotten some four stars. They've gotten some JUCO guys that, like a Deion Smith who started at LSU, went to JUCO. Now he's at Ole Miss. They, they're really efficient with that, with that spend because they're saying, okay, well, we can't have a class of five stars. We can't have 10 guys because half of them are going to transfer anyway. We're, we're going to pay them to, to not play necessarily. Lane's not a big freshman uh, getting on the field guy. Uh, except in very rare cases like a Quinshawn Judkins. Um, and so they say, we're going to go get established people out of the portal, and we're going to spend, you know, they might be costly. They might be a million-dollar defensive lineman, perhaps, but uh, we're, we're going to do it after they've proven themselves and, and not necessarily coming out of high school, but still but kind of having a great balance. But Lane was, he was so early on it and so, I think, smart with getting everybody on board and pulling pulling the rope in the same direction from a collective standpoint, from an administration standpoint, coaching and roster management standpoint. And then you bring in, you know, Pete Golden, who I think is sort of the one of the secrets in all of this. And uh, he mentioned yesterday that that game in Georgia was such a wake up call when you get kicked in the teeth and punched in the mouth. And, and Pete just didn't have the size. They didn't have the length. If you, you know, somebody has 100 pounds on you and leans on you for four hours, you're going to break by the middle of the, the, the first half, which is exactly what happened. So Pete said, we need to build a defense. And that's what Lane's doing. And a couple of fun 
offensive prospects as well, like a Juice Wells or a Deion Smith coming in. But it, it's been a really fun way to watch uh, portal development and roster development in, in the case of Ole Miss. It's fascinating. It, it really is. The point that you brought up about saying, okay, why are we going to spend our money on this underclassman, this freshman, this sophomore that may or may not play? Why why, why not would we instead go look at somebody that's established, that we, we have a little bit more realistic tape on, that, that isn't as much of a risk? You can't do it entirely based on that because obviously you still got to develop the, the in-state guys. You can't burn those bridges in that way. But Lane has found this very specific balance and it is hard but what he is trying to do in my opinion is totally different than what Deion Sanders was trying to do last year at Colorado right like what Lane is essentially saying is look I know what we're up against we're not going to burn those high school bridges they still had what like six blue chip recruits or five blue chip recruits at the high school level and they're still trying to develop in that way but getting that opportunity and doing it not not with like oh we're going to have 50 guys from the portal or something like that you're not telling your, your guys, hey, you're not going to have a spot on this team. It, it is really, really fascinating. I do wonder if we're going to get to a place where Ole Miss is talked about entirely different in the latter half of the 2020s. Like, how do you feel that Ole Miss is going to be talked about moving forward? Because probably as an Ole Miss fan in the 2010s, very different conversations when you have when someone says like, oh, like, who's your team? And you go like, oh, yeah, like Ole Miss, we're going through it right now. Like how how has that changed for you? Yeah, it's it's funny. It's sort of in a year really has gone from the oh the upstart you know kind of team that has been getting kicked in for the last couple of years, whether it's violation you know uh, with Hugh Freeze etc. But you look back to like a 2013 class and said, okay, Ole Miss Ole Miss has it. You know, at some point it was putting up the money or the the, uh, the maybe the benefits right to uh, to get guys like Kemdichi in the door. But it is, it's kind of this roller coaster where, okay, where the, you know, the expectations are still low and it's still Kiffin and he hasn't won anything. And then this hyper sort of pedal to the metal, everybody's coming back. You'll have Dart, Judkins, Trey Harris, Caden Priestcorn, et cetera, coming back, building a defense. And all of a sudden it's hype now and there's expectations. And you see teams like, remember the 2011 Philadelphia Eagles signed every free agent in the book and on the Asamoah. Here we go. We're going to have this super team. And, you know, eight and eight or something like that. So it's going to be the first time that Ole Miss is is playing with real expectations, like not just winning season expectations, not just eight or or nine wins, but there are college football playoff expectations, especially in the expanded world. And it's been fun to see from a media standpoint, you kind of become a media darling. Um, But that those internal expectations are going to be on them for the first time. And it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to that. But Lane talks about culture one guys all the time, guys that have have been there, that have built this thing. And and the transfer portal becomes less of a mercenary kind of tactic. It's more get a guy in who's going to buy in one of your guys, JJPDs, for example, comes back for for another year. And he was the first domino basically saying, hey, we're we're either going to go off and and sow our oats in the NFL or we're going to get we're going to give this one more try. And when you have a leader in the locker room like JJ or, or, or Jackson, you know, I think we'll expect an announcement from here in the relatively near future to come back. It, it's, it just makes all the sense in the world. And it's fun to see the media sort of, okay, we're on board with Ole Miss now. We're not just a, uh, a doormat. And, and then you look at a team like Florida, who's going the opposite direction, not to throw the Gators under the bus. But it's funny to see the media just, you, you, you kind of have these arguments and these darlings that come and go, but 
uh, it's certainly better to be in a, a darling position than, than not. And being the ultimate good vibes team, which Ole Miss was after 2020, they will be the ultimate good vibes team this offseason. I'm, I'm putting my stamp on it right now. Barring something crazy, you know, Judkins injury, something like that. I mean, like something drastic, Judkins portal, something stunning that just throws everybody for a loop. It's going to be really hard to take that title away from them. I went back and read an old column that I wrote, not the six and six prediction that Lane called out. Uh, did, didn't want to go back and read that, wherein I definitely predicted them to lose to Vandy. Um, I went back and I read the column I wrote after the Matt Luke firing. And I kind of cautioned old Miss fans, be careful what you wish for. There was, I remember reading the story from Nick Suss about the, the mutiny that was happening within that program after Matt Luke got the vote of confidence. Keith Carter, who's just just signed on to become the AD and gives him this vote of confidence. And all of a sudden he's told, like, actually, you don't have a job and players are just livid. I'm thinking to myself, who's almost think they're going to get like, what what are they doing here? Who, like, who's going to get them out of the, this rut and, and get everybody back on board? And Lane is, has stabilized it in ways that I couldn't have ever dreamed of. What do you remember about that juncture? Because that feels like such an important fork in the road, and it couldn't have really ended up a whole lot better than where it's ended up, you know, three, four years later. Yeah, I think it was, we're, we're going to take a swing. And you kind of need to at that point. Keith Carter comes in, sort of wants to put a stamp on things. It's, we're not going to be safe anymore. We're not necessarily going to be a program guy like uh, a Luke family, uh, you know, who, who's been with Ole Miss forever, and said, we're, we're going to see if we cannot function in this new era of college football knowing what was coming down the pike at that point and and lane ends up being the perfect guy to do it sort of rehabs obviously at fau and and here we go we're going to take a swing with sec resources um obviously a couple of years of winning and and lane is a hot commodity for for the auburn job etc but at that point it was well it can't get any worse and we're going to be at you know if if, if seven wins is the expectation we can hire Connor O'Gara to coach the team because you're going to have that ability year in, year out with it. Just the, just the, the nay, you know, kind of the late talent you have in Mississippi and Alabama, et cetera. But that's not the expectation anymore for Keith Carter. And he said, when Lane comes in, the best, the best four and five team in the country in 2020, uh, we have a blast with the COVID year, but all of a sudden you see the program building, right? It's, it's less about kind of churning talent through. It's less about guys coming in and, then, then now there's a program. Now there's a culture. Now there's a social media presence. Come to the SIP. Transfer to the SIP. Uh, you get you get people on board from all all facets of life. It's the sponsors like a real tree, for example. It's it's the administration with Keith Carter and, and Lane giving giving him the the ability to do kind of whatever he wants from a program standpoint. Uh, facilities upgrades that were much needed. So Lane comes in and says, if you want to win, we're going to do it my way. If you want to be seven and five every year, keep doing it your way. And that was the decision that was made, uh, you know, kind of in 2019, 2020. And, and we've seen the benefits uh, reaped from that tremendously. I wonder how many jobs there are that would open up that would make you say, oh, boy, we're going to have to sweat this out. That list is it, it is smaller than what we thought a few years ago, for sure. I mean, we've seen Auburn, we've seen A&M, the Miami thing that I remember a couple of years ago was like, oh, is Lane going to leave from Miami? Like that list can't be that long anymore. What, what's your your take on that? Like how many jobs do you think could open up where you'd be legitimately nervous that Lane could leave for? Yeah, I mean, A&M did it this year. You know, it, when when that job opened up, I Lane's on the short list and and he should be, right? Like that's a, that's a 
badge of honor for a program. So that made me nervous, but there, there are probably f- five. I mean, it's, you, you look at the, the Bama job, obviously, you go for like a Georgia or a Texas. Those are sort of the three major ones that I would put LSU in that category as well. Everybody says, you know, well, if Florida opens up or Auburn opens up again, it's, those are less, you know, in this new world, less attractive because all of a sudden the 12 team playoff is your ticket in. You don't need to be a top four team with the, the, the A&M type resources to compete year in, year out. You, you can get to a playoff by winning 10 games and losing to uh, an Alabama or losing to a Georgia or losing to a Texas or Oklahoma in this situation. So, yeah, it's one of those things where I'm, I don't think I'm nervous about anything at this point. And if you're a Mizzou fan and you're scared that drinks going to go somewhere, or you're an Ole Miss fan and scared that Lane's going to go somewhere, I think it's one of those things where we've, we're kind of past that at this point. So very few jobs, but a Bama opens up or a Georgia opens up. I am certainly nervous in that case. I, yeah, I'd put it even less than five. I, I really would at this point. I, I think it's like three. I, I really do. Because, I mean, LSU opened with, with Brian Kelly. Like that, that, sure. And it was a you know a big, splashy addition. Obviously, Lane had only been there for, for two years. But still, it's one of those things that I'm kind of looking at now going, man, uh, if you had taken the over on whatever that, that projection was when he was hired, and, and if you had just said, like, yeah, I think Lane will be here more than three years. I, I do. You would have probably been in the minority at the time. And it's, you know, in a different world. We were saying the same thing about P.J. Fleck in Minnesota. Oh, God, he's just going to use that as a stepping stone job, and he's going to get a bigger – like P.J. Fleck is still at Minnesota after all these years, and it could be a similar situation where, as you bring up, Lane wants to see how this plays out with the 12-team playoff, see how your roster stacks up. Who knows? Maybe we're going to look up, and he's in year eight at Ole Miss, and it kind of you know goes against everybody's predictions when he first came on board. Do you have a, uh, a Peach Bowl prediction for how it's going to shake out against Penn State? I think it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, I can't wait to play because Penn State sort of feels like the old Miss of the Big Ten, right? Can't beat Michigan, can't beat Ohio State, but sort of firmly in third. And that's where, where Ole Miss feels uh, right now. Maybe not firmly. LSU fans are yelling at their, their computer right now or their <laughs> headphones. But uh, I, I think Ole Miss wins a sloppy game. And I think Penn State's defense is really good. I think Penn State's offense is questionable. I think Ole Miss's offense is really good and their defense is questionable. So it's going to be the, uh, the battle of, of kind of sloppy play in my mind. So I'm, I'm going to say Ole Miss 21-17 and kind of a gross game, but a fun game. Lane doesn't win a whole lot of gross games. That's that's kind he, of atypical. And, it, you know, it's he, he doesn't win gross games, but he wins he wins games that just kind of cocky ego games that, especially this year, he, he comes down to a, a final drive or something like that. Maybe maybe a Jackson Dart face mask away from, from beating Bama last year. I don't know, but... Uh, but we'll see. I'm very excited to, to play that game. And I, I know Penn State has some guys opting out. Ole Miss seems to be, I think, knock on wood here, everybody seems yeah. to be playing. Um, so it'll be a fun game. It's, it's going to be cool to see them on a, on a big stage like the Peach Bowl and have a chance to go uh, win 11 games for the first time in program history. Tell you what, if it's a four-point game at the end and I got to bet on James Franklin or Lane, uh, yeah, I'm not betting on James Franklin. Let's just let's just say that. He's going to find a way to figure it out. Uh, right. There you go. Yeah, this has been great, man. Really, really interesting stuff. I recommend everyone go check it out. It's the, the plan to fix college football. Uh, we'll do this again soon, maybe in the midst of Ole Miss being the ultimate good vibes team this offseason. There we go. Connor, appreciate you having me on. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, check it out, like Connor said, fixing college football, leave your comments. I'd love to hear uh, holes poked in the argument, et cetera. So uh, really looking forward to being back on, and thanks for having me. Was the night before Christmas when all through the SEC, not a team was stirring, not even the coach of Mississippi. 
The final year of college football as we know it had nearly passed. Plenty still hoped that the best was saved for last. Non-conference play was supposed to be the SEC's demise. A playoff without the SEC, or perhaps the ultimate surprise. Florida State was told that the games no longer mattered. Alabama moved on as FSU's playoff dreams shattered. But 2023 was about much more than the CFP. We had storylines aplenty in the mighty SEC. Georgia set forth on a path of college football history. It worked through slow starts that were a bit of a mystery. Year two proved to be eventful for BK and Billy. Both disappointed, but at least Jaden's numbers were silly. He lit up scoreboards en route to the Heisman, but moving Perkins around was not the move of Wiseman. Florida started with hope, but collapsed down the stretch. Mistakes piled up that would make a strong stomach wretch. At least it didn't pay a coach to go away. Texas A&M shouted as it loaded the cash-filled sleigh. Now Bobby, now Coley, now Durkin and Jimbo. On buyouts, on straight cash, on hiring Mike Elko. To the top of the world, to the top of the rankings. Now gig em, gig em, I say. Let's give Texas yearly spankings. The horns were up when it appeared the tide was down. Little did we know that Milrow and Reese would turn it around. Mark Stoops told fans that it was time to pony up. Excuses or not, he clearly wasn't sipping out of Mizzou's cup. The Tigers were no longer the team that made others snicker. They won week after week with help from the thicker kicker. Some other Tigers showed promise but had a different fate. That included losing a game and $1.7 million to New Mexico State. At least Auburn made a bowl game while others did not. Five SEC teams watched their postseason dreams rot. Beamer and Lee followed an alarming year three trend, while Arnett and Pittman coached in the game that needed to end. Joe Milton claimed he would throw it like Uncle Rico, but instead, Tennessee fans were ready to move on to Nico. It definitely didn't feel like 98, and you could tell from the start. But going 8-4 and four is still better than having a five-star heart. Neither the Vols, Rebs, or Dogs could silence the tide. Even the selection committee let the Texas loss slide. The dynasty was dead in the middle of September, but week after week, the GOAT made us remember. Curse words were said and blood vessels were popped. Turnovers were had, but Bama could not be stopped. Auburn grew restless as it began to toss and stew. Why did we sit back and only rush to? Alabama slept peacefully with dreams of roses and glory. Another chapter awaited the Tide's 2023 story. But as Saban tried to move the press clippings out of sight, he awoke and shouted, There will be no rat poison tonight. Merry Christmas, everybody. couple of quick housekeeping notes uh, before we send you off on your way. The Betting the Bulls podcast, those episodes, if you subscribe to this show, which you definitely should, you've probably already seen it uh, in your feed. We have done two episodes. The most recent episode that we did was on the four non-playoff New Year's Six Bowl episodes. A lot of great gambling advice uh, from my, not, not, just, not just me. Uh, definitely not just me. Marler crushed it with all things gambling and Bob Winkle. Uh, those two guys know their stuff a lot. We, but we just talked about a lot of different things. If you are getting in on the action at all, great, great listen to be able to 
to, to figure out what exactly you want to root for in some of these some of these games uh, throughout the the postseason here. So those bonus episodes once a week. We are still going to have all of our normal episodes up, but there will be a little bit of a tweak on that because if you've looked at the calendar, the next three Mondays are atypical. We've got yeah, well, I guess next two Mondays are atypical. Three if you include the national championship. Because we've got Christmas coming up on a Monday, New Year's Day is a Monday, and then the National Championship is on a Monday. So for the sake of our recording purposes, guess what? We are not going to be recording on Mondays. We will instead be recording on Tuesdays and on Thursdays as well. So we will normally have pods that are showing up in your feed on Friday mornings. And then on the pods that we record on Tuesday, we're going to get some of them out a little bit earlier. But at the latest, they will be out on Wednesday morning. So the plan is we're going to preview the AM bowl game with the pod that we record next Tuesday. We're recording that on the 26th. That'll be out uh, on the 27th. And then we're going to preview all eight, the other eight SEC bowl games. So we're going to have a ton of stuff to be able to, to dig into. We've got great guests lined up next week as well. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday on South podcast which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the STS Pod, at Sat Down South, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.